I am here with Dr. Gary B. Fogel, an adjunct professor of aerospace engineering at San Diego State University in California, IA. Uh, he's also the CEO of Natural Selection Incorporated. We'll talk a little about that. He's the author or co-author of Quest for Flight, John J. Montgomery and the Dawn of Aviation in the West, the Torrey Pines Glider Port, and Wind and Wings, the history of soaring in San Diego. And he lives in San Diego, California. Uh, his latest, Skyrider, Park Van Tassel, and the Rise of Ballooning in the West. Available at bookstores, Amazon, et al, et al. Uh, Dr. Fogel, Gary, welcome. Rachel, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Park Van Tassel, you know, rumor has it that he served as a sort of prototype for what became the Wizard of Oz. There you go. Yeah. Well, uh, he, he served a lot of different prototypes over his career and uh, really was was one of the first to to, to try ballooning in, a, in an exhibition role. He not only wanted to go up in balloons and understand how to do that, but really understood that one could make a career doing that and being an exhibitionist like a P.T. Barnum or a Buffalo Bill Cody, but going around the West showing people what ballooning was like, because back then no one had ever seen anyone fly before. And so, you know, 100,000 people show up now to, to watch a balloon fiesta, but 100,000 people back then would just show up to see him try, because um, it was very much like a, like a SpaceX launch or a, a Blue Origin launch. It was magical at the time. 1783, the Montgolfier brothers make the first uh, human uh, balloon flight uh, in France. Almost a century later, Park Van Tassel is in Albuquerque, uh, making the first ascension there. Right. It took, a, it took a while, actually, for ballooning to get to the United States, especially to the western United States. Um, it took a good 10 years for ballooning to come from France to the eastern U.S. Uh, it also took a little bit more time for parachute jumping from balloons to come from France uh, to the U.S. on the east coast. Uh, first parachute jumps were in 1819 in, in New York. But then, you know, it wasn't until like 1850s that people were ballooning in California. And then it kind of came back into the American West uh, in the 1880s, largely through Van Tassel. He came from Stockton, California, um, uh, originally from Indiana, but it moved to Stockton, started flying balloons in, in Stockton and Sacramento, not really very well, uh, not very successfully, but trying. And then moved with his wife to Albuquerque in 1881 brought a balloon with him, uh, shipped out from San Francisco, and on July 4th of 1882, made his first, uh, his own first flight in a balloon and the first flight ever in New Mexico territory. And then went on from there to fly his balloons in other cities in the United States and, and overseas. Yeah. yeah, so this is the, this is a really amazing thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a long story. Uh, and of course, the book goes into more detail than, than I probably do on the podcast here. But um, you know, having made this one first flight back then, it was a very difficult thing, not only to get the, the balloon filled with the gas required to get it to have enough lift to go up into the air, that that gas had just come to Albuquerque, the illuminating gas that was used to light up the, the, the buildings and such. He used two days of the entire city's illuminating gas to fill his balloon two thirds full for that flight. And was managed to go up to 14,000 feet, but without a lot of ballast. So the flight back down was a little bit uh, crazy. Uh, the descent rate was a little high, but he survived. Uh, he tried to make other exhibitions of ballooning in New Mexico in throughout the rest of 1882, but not successfully. And 
And after that, he was, you know, almost uh, almost left New Mexico with people thinking he was a fraud, although he had done it. He had actually flown, but he couldn't repeat it. So he went to Utah and made the first gas balloon flights in, in Utah at Salt Lake, at Salt Lake City uh, in 1883, again, July 4th, 1883, so Independence Day celebrations. And that really was a great flight in, in, in 1883 in Salt Lake, uh, went up. Uh, with a monkey as this passenger uh, and and went to 15,000 feet, went up with another person, a woman, uh, Fanny Hoyt, uh, and for a six and a half hour flight, flew over the Wasatch Rains and really felt like he had figured out how to do ballooning. It was almost like he's learning on the on the job. Um, he then came back to San Francisco and then went to Oregon, making the first balloon flights in Portland, uh, some other balloon flights in the, in the north, uh, came back to California to San Francisco and built a very large balloon called the Eclipse. This was a 110 foot high balloon, 58 foot diameter. And with that balloon, um, he went to the World's Fair in, in New Orleans, was hired by the World's Fair to demonstrate ballooning and made a wonderful flight on March 19th of 1885 at that World's Fair. But with a crazy landing uh, on one side of the Mississippi River in a swamp, and he got tossed out in the balloon managed to bounce across the river and landed on the other side of the river. So he had to go figure out how to get it back. Uh, the balloon was uh, in not great condition and brought that back to California. But because of these events, he was gaining considerable national recognition um, and and really you know, making his own career now out of doing this rather than being the barkeep that he was back in Albuquerque. It was not only hard to do that because you had to go from city to city and make enough money to be able to go to the next city, um, but it was also hard to um, maintain relationships. So he had a series of a series of wives through the through these very many challenging tours he made over time that um, that either put up with him or joined into the into the uh, the event. So his wife Clara uh, Clara Corkendile, uh, who ended up being Clara Van Tassel, uh, made the first woman's parachute jump uh, from his balloon uh, over the skies of Los Angeles. Uh, in 1887 uh, and jumping down successfully, sorry, 1888, jumping down successfully over Pasadena from a balloon. Again, that's the first woman in the Western US to make a parachute jump, again, on July 4th. And that event was so amazing. Um, word got out before that that was gonna happen that, that Clara was gonna jump. And you know, back in 1888, um, women, women weren't gonna be going up in balloons. That was the way society felt, which was unfortunate. But Clara was determined to do this and um, so they they realized that they were going to do this. Some people thought that that she was that it shouldn't happen, and that she was maybe going to commit maybe going to commit suicide on July fourth, which you know that would be terrible. How can anyone do this? Send the police and stop her. And so the Van Tassels heard the police were coming, so they launched early uh, and avoided the the police. Got up in the air, and she jumped for a successful flight from five thousand feet down to make that attempt. And I should I should also mention that as Van Tassel was going through these tours, it was always a challenge for him to find the next best thing that people would pay money for. After a while, people were like, well, we know you can do balloons. That's nice. We'll pay you to see this. Yeah. But the crowds kind of started to dwindle. So how could I make it more enticing? And he and another, and another gentleman named Thomas Baldwin co-invented the parachute, uh, the flexible parachute in San Francisco as a way of adding it to the exhibitions and making more money. Um, Park was not eager to jump from, from balloons with parachutes. His colleague, Thomas Baldwin, was far more eager. And uh, Tom Baldwin took the idea, went to Illinois, went to New York, and then went to Europe 
to make fantastic parachute jumps from balloons and became exceedingly well known for that uh, that type of exhibition where Van Tassel kind of was left on his own wondering if he could be doing that uh, too. Uh, it was a little scary. And his wife, Clara, was like, you know, well, we're going to do this. And so she was one of the first to jump out and actually show that it could be done here on the West uh, as a family. So 100 years after the Montgolfiers first uh, rose into the air, uh, uh, around 11 years, a decade before the Wright brothers' first uh, powered fixed-wing flight, we have cutting-edge technology going on, uh, not only with uh, lighter-than-air uh, Alternative gases you mentioned um, that was that was the Albuquerque flight, not hot air, but uh, right. uh, but a but a lighter than air gas, um, right. and you know inventing uh, parachutes and all sorts of things. Right, and and inventing the whole method of doing exhibitions. I mean, you had to go on the rail systems from town to town, and, and wherever you know, you're only going to really hit the towns that are on the rail. Uh, and it was almost like a, a bit of a race. People, other exhibitors, other balloonists kind of caught on to this exhibition idea that, that Van Tassel was doing. And there were actually many different people after the invention of the parachute, uh, Van Tassel and Baldwin's invention of the parachute, that they caught on to this idea and started making their own jumps from balloons. And so right away, Van Tassel realizes that there's competitors on the rails doing the same kinds of things. He goes back to Salt Lake City um, in 1889 to try to make these parachute jumps. Um, he ends up bringing the wrong balloon. He brings his wife's balloon, which was a smaller balloon. Uh, but he's signed on to do a very large ascension for a lot of money. So he's going to do something. And, and he also comes to Salt Lake City and realizes that there's there's two other people making these parachute jumps from balloons there already. A guy named James Price and, and Millie Viola, a uh, very courageous woman. Um, and so <laughs> he's got the wrong balloon. How, how do I keep my, my bargain? And he ends up finding a gentleman named uh, Dudley Cochran, uh, just basically someone off the street, pays him 400 bucks uh, to go up in the balloon and jump uh, from the parachute with no experience at all, uh, but masquerading as Park Van Tassel. And so the papers write that the great Van Tassel has made his parachute jump, but of course it wasn't him, it was someone else. Um, and in the end, he ends up teaming up with James Price uh, as later Van Tassel and another gentleman, Joe Lawrence, uh, make a tour, not of the American West, but they realize that they can take this parachuting ballooning act uh, to the rest of the world. And they first go to Hawaii, then Australia, then Southeast Asia, and then India and beyond. And all that's outlined in the book. Again, all these, these events. Um, the beauty of that, there's, two, there's an unfortunate circumstance and then there's beauty. Uh, the unfortunate circumstance is that while they were in Hawaii, uh, not only did the, they make the first successful parachute jump in Hawaii's history, but unfortunately, uh, Joe Lawrence, uh, the gentleman that was working with Van Tassel at the time as his, as his jumper, um, went up aloft in the balloon uh, with the trade winds that were there in Hawaii. And the trade winds were strong enough that they blew Joe Lawrence and the balloon out to sea. And he released uh, from the balloon with parachute, trying to get back down to land as fast as possible, but still was carried out to sea and landed in the ocean. And unfortunately, it was never seen again. Um, the, the stories went from just simply missing at sea to being eaten by sharks to all sorts of uh, crazy international news uh, about the horrific way that uh, that parachutist went out. And there was also confusion that was it Park Van Tassel? Was it this Joe Van Tassel, brother of Park Van Tassel that no one knew about that was actually Joe Lawrence? Uh, and there was great confusion in the papers. Did Park Van Tassel die or not? 
Um, but despite that, after that, they continued on to Australia uh, as, a, as a basically a traveling troop, exhibition troop. And in Australia, they made some amazing jumps, uh, not only with men, but now with women. So they found two trapeze artists, uh, the Freitas sisters, uh, Gladys and Valerie. And those sisters really wanted to become part of the act. Uh, and by... Uh, 1880, 1890, 18, sorry, 1890, uh, Valerie Prietis masquerading as Valerie Van Tassel, another sister of the family, uh, made the first parachute jump by a woman in Australia, followed very uh, shortly thereafter by Gladys, her sister. And immediately both of those women are, are lauded as national heroes in Australia's history. So basically the, the, the introduction of women flight, women, female flight in Australia was through Van Tassel's troop in 1890. Um, and these are amazingly huge events. Again, 100,000 people showing up at each city, going from town to town uh, in Australia. Uh, so uh, ballooning in the United States uh, through Park Van Tassel began as kind of a circus-like event. Exactly, yeah, traveling, a traveling exhibition. Uh, in the years after fixed-wing flight, and rotary-powered flight became the norm. Uh, ballooning uh, shifted away from this uh, exhibitionist atmosphere to more of a hobbyist atmosphere. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and if we look at it uh, now, it, it's a, a different animal. Absolutely. And uh, in addition to that, that amazing transition that happened between, let's say, 1900 and 1910 with the introduction of powered flight, um, several other things had happened. Uh, one is that more and more people were doing these exhibitions with parachute jumping. And quite frankly, the daredevils, um, the, the success rate, <laughs> you know, it's a very difficult, dangerous thing. And there were people that would die as a part of that exhibition because the parachute didn't open or something of that nature. Uh, so very difficult, dangerous exhibitions. Uh, Van Tassel managed to survive uh, till 1930 to old age, which was great, uh, but unfortunately many didn't. And that that also kind of created a, a dark cloud over that type of exhibition. There were a lot of people doing that in a very daredevil sense. But um, in the early, I'm sorry, in the late 1800s, of course, gliding came into fashion, uh, unpowered flight, people experimenting with these kinds of gliders to, to try to figure out how to do powered flight. Uh, and uh, there was the opportunity of carrying the gliders aloft with the balloons and releasing them from a balloon at high altitude. One of the first to do that was a gentleman named John Montgomery in 1905 uh, in the Bay Area. And in fact, Park Van Tassel was one of the people he worked with uh, to arrange the ballooning, to hoist the, the glider aloft to get it to go. And there were also people working in dirigibles uh, at the time. These are powered, kind of like a blimp, but they're, they're gas-powered, uh, they're, they're gas-filled uh, lighter than air aircraft with a with a structure underneath them um, that are powered with a propeller to go around. And some of the first dirigibles in America were also in the Bay Area. Um, and again, exceedingly interesting, important parts of America's development. Uh, but you are correct. After after the Wright brothers into 1905, 1906, people realized that the powered flight with heavier than air aircraft were, was possible. That became more exciting, I think, than the uh, ballooning from, you know, the parachuting from balloons. Uh, so the exhibition now was actually flying with a plane and the popularity of that took off literally. Um, but ballooning still was popular as a recreational hobby. 
And after Van Tassel had made these tours of the world, um, Australia, Southeast Asia, India, Africa, Persia, Europe, back to India, and then back to Oakland, um, he returned to this environment of dirigibles and powered flights and just that it was a totally different California than, than what he had left to go this, on this multi-year world tour. Um, but he now as an elder statesman um, helped younger balloonists uh, enjoy just the recreation of ballooning. And he started up some clubs uh, in the Bay Area for ballooning, helped organize some of the first balloon races. Um, definitely, if there would have been the opportunity to do a balloon fiesta at that time, uh, he would have been right there organizing it. And he would love the balloon fiestas that are at Gallup and Albuquerque in New Mexico. Um, of course, most of that is now hot air ballooning. Uh, back then, it was still gas ballooning largely. Um, there were also people that were doing smoke balloons. So you have the balloon held over a, a pit of burning material that creates enough heat that does heat up the balloon like a hot air balloon, but doesn't have a propane burner. It's just burning material underneath it. You have to be very careful about not catching the balloon on fire. And then you're going to go up in the smoke balloon and jump out as a parachutist, and the smoke balloon is going to come back down somewhere. And did, uh, I, did, and did I hear that? Did I hear that uh, one of the advantages of the smoke ballooning was that the particulate matter from the smoke might actually help seal some of the seams? Yeah, that would probably be a good. That's 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 probably correct. But again, these smoke balloons were very interesting too because uh, once the parachutist has jumped out, the the balloon's free to come down wherever it wants to come down. And even the stories of where the balloons came down, they the balloons needed to get rescued or landed on a house or landed in the water. Um, and I can only imagine that the, the balloons, because of the nature of the activity, probably didn't have a long, long lifespan. And, uh, and in the book, you'll, 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 you get the sense that they're keeping, they're remaking balloons like all the time to keep the exhibition going. Do you think that um, uh, the exhibitions of Park Van Tassel and his, and his, uh, those he inspired yeah. uh, also uh, were directly influential on the later uh, barnstorming and wing walkers and such? Yeah, great question. I, I don't, I don't really know. And so that's a really good, uh, really good question. So Park um, in the 1910s was helping with these balloon clubs by in about 1920. Um, he was getting rather old and uh, we had the unfortunate pandemic in 1918 that curtailed a lot of activities. So in the 1920s through the late 1920s, uh, he was pretty much on his own uh, as a caretaker of a, uh, an area in near, near Santa Cruz, uh, a building near Santa Cruz, and then uh, passed away in 1930. And I think as barnstorming came into vogue with heavier than air aircraft in the 1920s and into the 1930s, Park would have been already um, kind of a lost a lost soul uh, from aviation. People probably didn't remember what he had been doing very much. Um, and unfortunately, it's the case that when he passed away, uh, he was remembered, which was great. Even the New York Times wrote a little article on him, but um, they had lots of mistakes in the article. They, they called him Parks Van Tassel instead of Park Van Tassel. They gave the wrong place for his first parachute jump. It, it's clear that his story had already kind of faded and people didn't understand it very well. And I've got to also add that um, in writing, researching this book, uh, first of all, I had the great fortune of working with two other individuals in researching this. A guy named Dick Brown, who was a Hall of Fame balloonist, uh, helped set up the balloon fiesta in Albuquerque, and Rick Van Tassel, who is the distant, a distant relative of Park Van Tassel, uh, but also a Van Tassel family historian. And together, they had collected over time lots of 
PDF newspapers of, of clippings of what had happened to Park Van Tassel over time. But think about it as little pieces of a big jigsaw puzzle. And the puzzle had never been put together before because Park, when he was doing these exhibitions, was going so fast from one town to the next that in the papers he'd show up as being here today and then he's gone tomorrow and that's it. Uh, and you have to figure out where he went to the next one and look at the papers there and then get the story and piece it together. And as we started piecing that together for every one puzzle piece we had, uh, we ended up finding three or four more puzzle pieces. And then the book kind of took its shape. So when we started, we didn't realize that he had gone to, to India or Sri Lanka or to Zanzibar. Uh, but you follow the path and you find your way to Zanzibar. And it's very interesting because people in Sri Lanka, for instance, um, they, re they, re they remember Van Park Van Tassel was the first to fly in Sri Lanka. He went up in a balloon and came down in a parachute in Sri Lanka. But they hardly, they hardly know anything about his time in Albuquerque. And people in Albuquerque hardly know about his time in Zanzibar or South Africa or in Persia. And so this is the first book to pull all that together and remember him for his entire journeys uh, over the world and what he did for both ballooning and parachuting. So again, back to your question, I think by the time he was in the 1920s and 30s, most people, especially in heavier than air flight, had forgotten about his courageous exhibitions. Now, um... I don't know if there were any uh, documentaries done about Park Van Tassel in particular, but your book presents uh, an option for that. Uh, it, has there been any speculation that there might be, a, say, a film documentary coming out of your book? No, I, ho I hope that might be the case. No one's, uh, no one's approached me yet, or, the, or to my knowledge, the approach you never see in New Mexico press for that. But of course, if people, if people that are listening are interested in doing that, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about it. Um, I think it'd be fun. I think it's well-deserving of that kind of treatment. I think it'd be good. There's, um, a, there's a narrative film. Uh, it came out through, what, Netflix or Amazon uh, in 2019, The Aeronauts. Exactly. Do you think that that was influenced at all by... Uh, that history of, of Park? That's a, yeah, actually, that's a different, um, I, it was a great movie, by the way. Uh, it, I, it was a different story uh, about a gentleman in England uh, who was very interested in meteorology and using balloons for science to measure uh, temperature aloft and things of that nature. Uh, and that movie was based largely on that gentleman's life uh, and the colorful way that, um, that Hollywood interpreted that story. Um, and so, a very, it's a very similar time, though. That was 1890s, uh, a very similar time to when Park was exhibit, exhi exhibiting his, his tours, tours, his troupe. Um, and the technology was very much the same. But again, the focus of that book and that movie was largely in, in England, not in the U.S. I think it would be very fun to, to have a similar kind of movie that shows and depicts the American West at the time. I mean, I, I, you go back and you think this is a just he's thinking very differently than everyone else. So the... Uh, he arrives in Albuquerque in 1881, shortly after the OK Corral in Tombstone. I mean, it's that it's that kind of period of time, and to to propose even just going up in a balloon at that time was 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 crazy. Uh, you know, just you know, it, it, no wonder he's a barkeep. You know, was this is he really serious or is he not? And maybe it's all a joke. And you did it, uh, and that was that's pretty fun. Reading, so, okay, go ahead. Reading okay. about Claire's parachute jump, it it did remind me of that film because it it yes. did feature. A, a woman as an aeronaut. Right. My understanding from the from the depictions of the movie, and I, I, again, I'm not a I'm not um, specifically familiar with that story, but my understanding is that Hollywood added the woman to that story. But I don't. I'm not sure of that. It would not be surprising. 
Yeah, exactly. But that was a great movie. It was fabulous. And the, the cinematography was amazing. And and also, as I was writing the book, I went to go see the film because it also helped me think about what it was like. If we could take yeah. if we could take just a sidebar and talk about sure. your company, uh, could oh, you sure. describe what Natural Selection Incorporated is and yes. what you do with it? Yes, sure. I'll be happy to do that. I'll do it as briefly as I can. Um, so my background is in biology. I have a PhD in biology. Um, and for the last uh, 20 years, 25 years now, I have been applying um, computing, uh, specifically AI and machine learning, to help solve problems in biology uh, in general. There are other areas that I am interested in, but mainly in biology. So uh, our company, Natural Selection, um, does that, it uses, uses very smart computing technologies to help find uh, new diagnostics in cancer, help with drug discovery, um, help with pattern recognition, looking at uh, the genome, the human genome, and trying to find um, disease relationships, things of that nature. Um, and so I'm, I'm very interested in, in, and passionate about helping uh, improve healthcare with machine learning. Uh, and as, a, as an aside, uh, I have enjoyed an entire life of model airplanes. Uh, I grew up as a, with, a wonderful, with wonderful parents who guided me correctly into model airplanes. Uh, it's been a lifelong passion. I've had the pleasure of setting some national records and world records with model airplanes. And because of that, I learned a lot about aviation as a kid without really reading the books. I just kind of learned it by doing it. Uh, and that has led me to have a passion of STEM education and getting kids involved in, especially at aerospace engineering or engineering of any kind, but using the model airplanes as a guide. So I teach a class at San Diego State uh, every fall. I have 150 students in my class that I'll be teaching later today. Um, and we use model airplanes as a guide to help them with the instruction of what's lift, what's drag, uh, how does a wing work, how does a plane work, what's a motor. Uh, and uh, they have a good time. We have a fun, fun class. Gary, do you have any interest in uh, following aviation on other worlds? Uh, you know, a patch uh, from the canvas of the original Wright Flyer accompanied the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars. Yeah, I think it's great. And I, I absolutely am very uh, uh, passionate about a space exploration. I've followed it um, since I was a kid. Uh, I was just just at the end of Apollo, uh, the Apollo program. And, but I've followed space flight as long as I can. I think it's amazing. Um, and it's also encouraging uh, that at San Diego State, for instance, uh, there's a, a great program, a rocket project program that the kids are involved with. Uh, that allows them to actually build and fly their own very, very large rockets. These are liquid-propelled rockets that are going to go up exceedingly high in the atmosphere with permission from FAA and all the rest of it. Um, but they do hands-on learning. And I, I just think that that type of hands-on education is exceedingly important. I think it's also important that we have the, the ability to be inspired by NASA and other, other, um, other groups pushing the envelope, as they are, SpaceX and Blue Origin and all the rest of it. But um, but it's really the hands-on education part that I'm the most interested in. And I, I am very interested in the aviation history aspect and writing about that because that also is inspiring to think about how hard it was for someone like Park Van Tassel to do what they did or for John Montgomery to be flying with heavier-than-air gliders uh, in the 1880s. Uh, very difficult to be doing that on your own, and you have to be very passionate about what you're doing. Um, and those kinds of lessons are very important to pass on to a younger 
audience and make it intuitive and fun. So I, I write about the aviation history as a way of helping to not only preserve it, but to use it for education. Well, if you want to understand uh, the future, understand the past. Exactly. Uh, you know, with regard to ballooning, um, if, you, if you draw a line from the Montgolfiers to Park Van Tassel and on, um, you know, we could be looking at balloons in the atmosphere of the gas giants or, I don't know, even Venus. Right. No, that's absolutely correct. That's right. That's uh, right. Uh, for you, um, what are the horizons of ballooning in the world that, that you can see? Um, yeah, great question. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, again, Park Van Tassel passed away in 1930. And think about all he did, which was amazing. But by 1960, uh, just 30 years later, uh, we had Colonel Joseph Kittinger, the second parachuting over New Mexico from a balloon that went up to over 100,000 feet and coming back down alive out of that jump. One of the first astronauts. Exactly. And, you know, again, over New Mexico, right? So it's it's just it, Van Tassel lived this amazing transition. He didn't get to see that level of performance. But we've gone so fast, so quickly. Um, it's almost kind of hard. It's a little bit mystifying to imagine what's going to be next. I think that Van Tassel and his exhibitions have been very important to New Mexico's history in particular. Uh, you know, we now celebrate uh, fiestas, balloon fiestas, hot air balloon fiestas in both Albuquerque and Gallup and other locations. And New Mexico has become this international hub of ballooning. And all of that started off with, with Van Tassel's early gas balloons in the 1880s. And it's just nice to look back and, and remember both Van Tassel for those exhibitions early on, but also in, in addition to that, the courageous women that um, parachuted along with him, both here in the West and also across the world, uh, and what he did for women's rights um, in aviation. I want them to be recognized both here in America and overseas uh, for the courageous women that took these tours and decided to go do this when a lot of people said they shouldn't. Um, and they just went ahead and did it anyway. So um, part of it is recognizing New Mexico's part of the history, uh, but also recognizing these fabulous aeronauts, both Van Tassel and these women he was associated with, and also his courageous wives that stuck in, they're stuck there with him for a while. He had five wives over his lifetime um, of exhibition and travels. Given your interest in radio control and such, uh, yeah. is it interesting to think about the history of remote control of aircraft and other systems and how it's gone from model aircraft to drones to now remote control of craft using AI on other planets. Exactly right. So yes, I'm very interested in that. Um, that's a, it's a, it's a sidebar passion. Uh, I've, I've been involved with, again, many uh, world record attempts to push the envelope on things. And also I think that's another component of STEM education that's very valuable. So getting students involved with model airplanes at, at, uh, at small scale, but low cost, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, it is when you're pushing envelopes and learning things, sometimes things don't work as planned and there's going to be crashes and things of that nature. And you can do all that at low cost and, uh, and low danger with a model first and understand a system well before you can put anyone in it. Um, and that helps with design. It helps with engineering. It helps you understand a system. Uh, it also is very challenging to think about how to do a computer that can control a flight of an aircraft um, and use machine learning to do that. That's its own computer science angle that also I'm involved with and have, have had the pleasure of working on and in making computers that are smart enough to fly things or do routing of things or schedule things. Um, so yes, do all of the above. And I think it is amazing that we can put a put a helicopter on Mars. I think that's that's 
amazingly credible and you have to use technologies like AI to get that done because the, the communication is so long between Earth and Mars that you can't necessarily control it in real time with a human pilot uh, on the Earth. You'd have to have some computer on Mars controlling it or on board the aircraft controlling it. And so it's only because of computing and the, the speed and amazement of computers that we're allowed to do these amazing things in aviation um, elsewhere. Computers have been so integrally involved, not only in um, controlling flights, but in simulating flights. Uh, many people are learning uh, how to fly radio control aircraft uh, through simulations on their PC. Correct. And so I sit at this amazing interface of computer science, machine learning, aeronautics, aviation history, and biology. And that's, that's, my, that's my area. Uh, and again, because I had just the luck of having American amazing parents, uh, my dad was a pioneer in aerospace engineering and worked exactly on what you just said, uh, early simulators using machine learning uh, to help train pilots uh, at NASA Langley in very large flight simulators back in the 1960s, where the pilot would fly against the computer opponent where the computer was already smart enough to start flying like the enemy pilot or even maybe a little better than an enemy would and use that for training. So even as early as the 1960s, people were already thinking about doing uh, computer science for flight simulation. And of course, now the computers are so good and the AI is so good that it's it's gone well beyond that, although that's still being done. Now you can control the aircraft in real time. Uh, no need to have the pilot on board and do missions that maybe even humans couldn't handle where the, the G loads are such that um, the aircraft could do things that a human couldn't do. And as we move into an age where fighter jets and other aircraft don't really need human pilots anymore, uh, what happens to the concept of the human pilot? I certainly hope it's not lost. Uh, I am definitely in favor of keeping humans, uh, human pilots uh, going for as long as we can. I think it's just part of human nature to want to fly. Uh, and so it would be a shame, I think, if all of computing took it over. Um, so I'd like to see it be a, a, a partnership, a, a, a symbiotic relationship where computers are helping pilots and, and pilots are doing the, the fun part of flying. Uh, it really is fun. I don't think a computer can have the fun we have yet. Maybe computers in the future can, but Right now, they can't understand what fun means. And it's just a, the excitement and joy of flight is just amazing. It's a different type of fun. I was I had the pleasure of just being in Albuquerque for the, the balloon fiesta. And um, what a joy just to see that many balloons in the air. It was just amazing. And I'd never, I've been to the Albuquerque before, but I've never seen a fiesta like that. Uh, and to have grown up uh, here in San Diego, uh, I did a little bit of work for a balloon company as a, in high school, uh, helping with Chase. But, you know, that's one or two balloons at a time, and uh, it, it's still fun, uh, but it's it's not nearly the same as as watching this amazing parade of balloons fly by at a fiesta. And that just is a different type of aviation that I don't think we should ever lose. You're a very smart guy, well-studied. I won't accuse you of being a genius, but I will draw a line between Leonardo da Vinci, who had such love of every aspect of science, biology, studied birds, uh, for flight, avid inventor, um, to what you do now and having so many intertwined holistic interests. So I appreciate that, Rachel. I don't think I'm at the, I'm not at the, I'm not at the Leonardo level, but I hope to get there someday. 
Is there anything that you might like to add, uh, share with our listeners that we haven't really talked about today? Yeah, there is. There, there are two things that come to mind uh, that I want to make sure that I, I get across. One is that we, we know that when Van Tassel was doing these tours of the world, he came back to Oakland in 1900 and he had a scrapbook with him, uh, a scrapbook of all of his journeys. And we know that through newspaper accounts in the early 1900s. But unfortunately, that scrapbook, we, we have no idea where it is or if it still exists. And so if anyone listening ever comes across that scrapbook, uh, please do make sure someone knows about it, uh, whether in Oakland or at the Albuquerque Berlin Museum. Uh, that scrapbook deserves to be preserved. Uh, absolutely. And then lastly, um, when Van Tassel passed away in 1930, that was uh, during the height of the Great Depression, unfortunately. And his family couldn't afford to um, they buried him in Oakland, but they couldn't afford a marker for his grave. So uh, through a lot of other research, I've determined uh, the location of his grave, his unmarked grave. And I've set up a GoFundMe uh, to start um, raising money to then put a marker uh, on his grave. And so if you go to GoFundMe, uh, you can look up Park Van Tassel grave marker. Uh, you can see the, the GoFundMe for that. And it would be, I think, wonderful and fitting to try to get a marker on his grave next year. Uh, just as a way of making sure that people honor him both in, in Oakland and in Albuquerque. So to your bio, Gary Fogel, we also add archaeologist. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been speaking with Dr. Gary Fogel, adjunct professor of aerospace engineering at San Diego State University in California and the CEO of Natural Selection Incorporated, author of uh, a number of books, including Quest for Flight, John J. Montgomery and the Dawn of Aviation in the West, mentioned in this uh, segment, uh, Torrey Pines Glider Port, and Winds and Wings, the History of Soaring in San Diego, as well as his latest, Skyrider, Park Van Tassel and the Rise of Ballooning in the West, including Albuquerque, and while not mentioned, Red Rock Balloon Rally in Gallup. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. I appreciate the time. <laughs> 